0: Hey everyone. Well, I feel like you need like an, ex- an extra special congratulations on making it through um, the parade traffic. So, well done. Um, you have made it. Um, and, and it's good to see, uh, it's good, honestly, it's good to see so many of you like fought through to make it this far. Um, and it's good to see Kathy Saberstein who helped us plant the church back in the day. Anyway, sorry, if you haven't seen, say hi to Kathy. Hey, like, you're, who's Kathy? I'll introduce you. It'll be great. Um, welcome, uh, welcome to the Elm City Vineyard. Um, sorry to, I don't know how to turn this corner, but um, yesterday, yesterday I was at um, uh, a memorial service for um, a colleague in ministry. Um, some of you may know uh, Rick Schneider, uh, who was involved in the, the Rivendell Institute. Um, he uh, passed away. Uh, uh, recently, and um, you know, you, you sometimes you go to a memorial service, and, and it's you know an opportunity to reconnect with with people, sort of mutual friends. It's an opportunity to um, hear um, uh, a bit about uh, someone's life. And this was this was a really extraordinary time um, of sort of encounter with Jesus, um, encounter with God, to sort of hear the story of this. Uh, man who had uh, followed Jesus his whole life had followed. Well, he had his letter, conversion in, uh, in in college, and then, um, uh, yeah, following Jesus took him to to Russia, brought him um, to to many different many different places. Um, he he eventually uh, passed away after a many years battle with ALS, which if you know that. Disease, really, really difficult disease. And as he was getting to the end of his time, he was sort of restricted to um, communicating with like a, an eye movement computer, sort of like picking out like letters at a time. And what he did with that um, last season of life is he wrote lots and lots of letters to friends, to neighbors, to colleagues at the university. He'd been involved in ministry here for a long time. Um, And, and as he was in his last, uh, his last uh, weeks and months, um, he, he devoted that time to not thinking about sort of what was going on with him, but about what was going on with other people. And we just heard testimony after testimony after testimony. The service began with a letter that he had written to us um, to be read at his memorial. It was a rich, rich testimony of a life lived in the footsteps of Jesus, and that's something we're thinking about in this season as we're thinking about walking with Jesus, and um, we've talked so far about um, sort of walking in the different ways that Jesus invites us to walk, to walk as children, wearing our needs on our sleeves to walk as those who are willing to pay costs. But this week, you know, we want to consider walking with Jesus doesn't just mean walking as he walked. It means going where he goes. The Jesus whom we follow, as I heard again and again in, in Rick's story, the Jesus whom we follow is alive Following Jesus isn't about a dynamic, uh, is, isn't about a, sort of a matter of trying to like imitate the best traits of some historic hero from long ago, but following Jesus is about a dynamic quest to follow a living person who continues to be at work in the world, to discern where Jesus is going and discern what He's doing so that we can go where He's going and do what He is doing so that we can enter in and follow step by step after this one. And today we're going to consider what if Jesus is going somewhere that we would rather not go? What if Jesus is going somewhere that's almost guaranteed to bring suffering, loss, even death? As we do that, I want, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. So, Spirit, we just pray. Would you speak to us this afternoon? As we try to learn the way of Jesus, who lived life full of the Spirit, we just ask Spirit of the living Christ, would you come and even um, open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive what you have for us today? Come. Amen. We've been going through Mark chapter 10. Today we have just these three verses. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. I've highlighted it here, um, but you can sort of see how it's working in the passage, this, this destination of Jerusalem. Jesus has decided to go to Jerusalem, and this really, this means something to those who are around. I'm not sure how to parse, like, like the folks who are, like, amazed And those who followed were afraid. Like maybe there's some like amazed folks, right? Who are like, wow, Jesus, you're headed to Jerusalem. I'm amazed. Tell me how it goes, (laughs) right? And maybe there's those who decided to follow him who are like, Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem, I guess I'm with you, but this, this is scary stuff. Why would this be scary stuff? Well, you've got you to understand, Jesus hasn't had the best of interactions with folks from Jerusalem. The scribes and the teachers of the law, they've been trying to trap him, tr- trying to catch him in a religious mistake. Maybe he's saying the wrong things or he's doing the wrong things. These are the two previous places in Mark where um, Jerusalem has showed up at this point. Um, Other than to say that some folks from Jerusalem came out to uh, to follow John the Baptist, but the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he about Jesus, Jesus has Beelzebul, um, some serious uh, uh, serious demon, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. All right, so they're not they're not on board, um, to say the least. Um, And then in Mark chapter 7, I didn't have time to give us the whole thing, but the, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. And the passage goes on, and they sort of, they grill Jesus about, you know, you know what we do, you aren't doing what we do, like, What gives? Um, and they, they end up in a, a, long, uh, a long sort of conversation in which, I should, we, I should say, Jesus pulls no punches um, and uh, describes to them, actually, what they do um, and what their religious practice is like. And, you know, out in the Palestinian countryside, um, Jesus has been able to get away with all of this so far. Um, not that the Jerusalem folks love what he is doing, but out on the margins, Jesus is on the margins, you know? Like, it's, um, it's not that's, that's, that's important to the powers that, to, that be in Jerusalem in terms of not losing control of the religious practices and religious imaginations of the people. Those things are established in Jerusalem, and what's happening out in the countryside? Who can say? So long as Jesus is geographically on the margins, His ideas and practices can reasonably cons- be construed the same way. But it's also important to them in terms of their relationship to um, their Roman overlords. The Romans, um, to be clear, couldn't care less about matters of, like, Jewish law and custom. The Romans had conquered all kinds of people, and they had long since given up. on trying to uh, sort out um, all the different customs of these folks, um, unless and until it caused some sort of Social unrest or uprising, then the hammer would come down, um, and not necessarily essentially from Rome, right um, Instead it would be like the local folks, the local gov- Roman governor, if he didn 't act swiftly, decisively, brutally, and word got to Caesar, then the governor would pay and so um, uh, uh, the, this this sort of um, concern about what might happen. Um, in Jerusalem plays in here as well, right? On that front, the stakes are simply lower out in the countryside. A small local squabble in some fishing village is unlikely to make the news in Rome, but a mob um, in favor of Jesus, against Jesus, either way, whatever it is, a mob in Jerusalem would make the headlines, and so severe action would need to be taken, and so the stakes are really, really high. In, in summary, Jerusalem, right, is a, a place of power, a place of religious authority, a place of political authority, a place of conflict, like the place of conflict, the place where those with whom Jesus has had quarter, uh, quarrels hold power. And for just that reason, it is a place of danger. It strikes me that we have our own sort of Jerusalems, right, a, um, some sort of place where God is inviting us to go because of God's, say, maybe because of God's work of justice and peace. and we, we see where God is naming a false peace, and God's calling us to take a stand in the city, in our place of work, in a fam- family dynamic or among friends. We sort of enter into to this space. And um, we're not looking for a a fight, but we're we're called by God to be faithful to whatever we might find in that space. Sometimes Jerusalem for us is a place where God is inviting us to draw near to suffering, a place where we can maybe see the writing on the walls that things are going to be hard, some degree of loss even may be unavoidable. But again, from time to time, right, we know that in precisely those places, God is calling us to be present, to be proximate. Again, this could be in the city, it could be in our place of work, or among our family or friends. For some in this room, this room is Jerusalem for you. Church is Jerusalem for you, a site of power, a place of conflict, a place of danger, maybe like Jesus, you have experienced the rejection of religious people. They've told you that you have God all wrong, that you can't or don't belong here, that maybe out there in the broader society we can tolerate some sort of broader welcome, but in here the scope of embrace has to be, has to be narrower. I was reminded in a particular way just this past Friday night when Um, As as Chris was saying, we had a a group sort of gather for prayer and worship in Hannah in my living room. We were praying through church hurt of just this sort, the ways that church has, for some of us, been a site of harm instead of, or in the the weird way that the world works, sometimes church has been a site of harm alongside also being a place of healing. And we were reflecting especially um, on the ways that we Um, As leaders in ECV have, have sinned and fallen short of what God has asked us to do in serving and welcoming and receiving our queer siblings in Christ. When we fall short of being church for one another, church can become Jerusalem in this dangerous sense for others. That's, in fact, precisely what Jerusalem is, right? The place that's supposed to be, the place that that the people of God meet with God. And yet, Jerusalem has become, in just this moment for Jesus, that and also a place of great danger. And sometimes, and I'm speaking of myself here in particular, we fall short of being church because we're afraid of conflict, afraid to follow Jesus into that place of power of conflict of danger. Maybe we're the ones who are just amazed and <laughs> ready to like let it happen but really don't want to be involved ourselves. But here's the here's the amazing thing about um, Jerusalem in this passage. Those who are amazed, those who are afraid, they're right actually. They're right to be amazed. They're a right to be astounded that Jesus would go there. They're right to be afraid about what it might mean to follow Jesus there. Jesus' answers. he says, like, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Like, right? Like, everybody's, I'm sort of imagining them on the road, and it's like, like, where is he, he going to go? Is he going to turn, is he going to turn left? No, man, he keeps taking, he's, he's taking the road. He's going up to Jerusalem. Like, how can it be? Right? And, like, whispers, what's going on? Does he not know? I think they've laid a trap for him there. Like, what's going, right? Is this really the move? And Jesus just says, yeah, you're right. 100%. That's what's going on. You've got it. We're going To Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't turn around and tell these folks that, oh, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem, but it's no big deal. He doesn't turn around and tell them to stop imagining the worst. He confirms perhaps the worst of their fears. Not only is there going to be conflict, not only is there going to be danger, but he is going to be killed. All the various power structures are going to come to bear. The religious powers will, um, will, will, will condemn him. They'll hand him over to the political powers that be, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. This is not a calming the storm moment, right? Jesus doesn't step in and make it all better. In this moment, he confirms, actually, that that things are going to be about as bad as some are fearing. Now, to be sure, I I don't read Jesus as relishing this. I don't think he's going to Jerusalem to look for a fight. I don't think he's going to Jerusalem hoping to suffer. Um, In Luke and Matthew, we actually get a window into Jesus' posture towards Jerusalem, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That, all right, sounds like, all right, so he's, he's got a beef with Jerusalem. But listen to the next verse, right? How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How often have I desired to gather you together? that you would be with me, that we could be together, that I could provide protection. I take it this is another layer of the pain that awaits in Jerusalem, namely the disappointment that comes as the city rejects the good thing that God has for it. This is part of walking with Jesus to Jerusalem. Yes, not, not shrinking from conflict, but not seeking it out exactly either but rather entering in with every hope that God would move hearts, with a, with a tender love for those who seem, for some reason, set on making themselves our enemies. With hope, as we said at the March for Peace last fall, that those who kill with guns will in fact drop the guns so that we as a city can live. With hope that each homicide would be the last even as we make plans to mourn homicides should they come." How do you do both of those things at once? Jesus, who knows he will be rejected in Jerusalem, right? still full of compassion for them. This is part of walking with Jesus to Jerusalem into genuine peril peril also to our hopes and dreams daring to expose them that is our dreams to disappointment and and it's again in this moment that Jesus does not deny that these dangers exist nor does he stop leading his disciples to Jerusalem because of the danger in case it hasn't become clear yet God's leadership, I take it, has nothing to do with safety or the sunshine path. Sometimes we like to say, like, oh, man, you know, we did this, we did that, and wouldn't you believe it? It all worked out. The Lord was really with us. And I always think to myself, and if it hadn't all worked out, like, would the Lord still be with us? It seems like the scriptures are full of cases in which everything goes really, really poorly. And God is with us. But I don't, think that it, I don't think that we can discern God's leadership by figuring out where things are hardest and just going there. We can't read God's leadership in our lives off the ease or the difficulty of the path. We can only do our best to discern together where it seems Jesus is going, what it seems that Jesus is doing, and do our best to go to those places and do those things. And sometimes... Sometimes that will look like walking together with him to Jerusalem. But of course, there is one more feature of walking with Jesus to Jerusalem that we haven't talked much about yet. And Some of you have no doubt you're waiting for this. There's this tag on the end. And after three days, he... Jesus speaking about himself in the third person. After three days, he will rise again. So short, right? This so compact a statement. The disciples say nothing about it. For what it's worth, the disciples don't say anything about any of it. Um, we'll, we'll see next week. Um, they ask some questions that maybe are related, um, but they don't like begin like a big, like, tell us more, help us better understand. They're like, Maybe they're just, you know, they're, like, astounded and afraid. <laughs> this little piece, appended to the end, certainly gets no notice in any case. And I suppose it's easy to blame the disciples, right, for not making more of this in the moment, right? I think at times in my life I've sort of thought, like, oh, like, if the disciples had just, like, caught all of this stuff about, like, being raised again on the third day, then they, then they wouldn't have been so afraid. And the promise of resurrection would have, like, taken the sting away, and they could have just, like, done the whole week in Jerusalem, like, sort of, like, smugly knowing to themselves the end of the story. But I don't, I don't think that's how it works. Even if they had taken Jesus' promise of resurrection to heart, certainly I don't think the Gospels invite us to, like, read that way, and, like, we know what's coming at the end. The Gospels aren't like, well, you know, they, 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 they flogged them, but like, you know, you, know, you know how the end of the story is coming. Now, even knowing resurrection doesn't erase the conflict and the pain and the suffering of Jerusalem. It doesn't mean those things didn't happen. It doesn't take away the pain of the flogging. It doesn't take away the sting of rejection in those moments. Resurrection doesn't erase the conflict and pain and suffering of Jerusalem. Instead, it gives it a new ending. The cross remains, but its meaning is changed after the fact. But only after the fact. I think if we try to lean too hard into resurrection too early in the story, we live in a fantasy, in a falsehood, Maybe we'll end up trying to deny the pain that we're experiencing, or worse yet, we might try to deny the pain that other people are experiencing. Jesus, for his part, I take it, will have none of that. See, we are going to Jerusalem. Bad stuff will go down. It will be painful. There's no sugarcoating it. In fact, I take it that's the point of the promise of resurrection, to allow the real sorrow, the real pain of life to be just as it actually is, and yet not to let that pain have the last word. The promise of resurrection allows the real sorrow, the real pain of life to be as it actually is, yet it also refuses to let it have the last word. The promise of resurrection invites us to place our hope not in our ability to avoid conflict and suffering, but in God's power to raise the dead. The promise of resurrection right, invites us. It's not like, oh, oh, I'm going to figure out, right? Like, uh, this already happened earlier on, right? Like, Peter heard the plan before, and he was like, he had the plan to, like, fix the problem. Jesus, if you just listen to me, you won't end up getting killed, Right? And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. When we're on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, it's not an opportunity for our problem-solving. And the hope of resurrection doesn't mean that we can sort of somehow live aloof from what is coming. But the promise of resurrection invites us to place our hope not in our problem-solving ability, but in God's power to raise The dead. Note all the things that Jesus does not say, right? He does not say, here's the clever way that we can testify to what God is doing without eliciting opposition. Some of us are really skilled at working out exactly those sorts of plans. If we just be a little more clever with our words, we can say this without anyone even noticing that there's like a conflict here. He doesn't say, here's how we can, by force, win the battle in front of us so that others will will suffer and we'll be safe. There's a lot of folks who are like on the like, let's just win. Then we wouldn't have to suffer. And Jesus certainly doesn't say, you know, considering the inevitable costs of obedience to God in Jerusalem, let's just not go. Again, that's, that's the Peter proposal. That's the path of Satan's temptation. One of the most powerful moments in the memorial yesterday was a story that um, Adam Idol shared. Adam's been um, a part of this community in various ways for several years Adam stood up in front of, in front of the group and he said, he said, I've been really worried about this ever since I was asked to speak because I realized I would have to tell the truth. And the truth might sound crazy. Here's, here's the truth of what happened as Adam tells it. Um, he and I had, had, had met Rick just uh, once, actually. Um, uh, and um, that had been several months before. I am now no longer part of this story. But that was, the, that was the interaction that he had had. And he's just driving, just like, Adam's just driving, doing his thing. When he gets this like really strong impression from the Lord, you need to get in touch with Rick Schneider. Think of like the 200th most familiar person that you know, right? Okay. Seriously, right? Okay? And this is what he hears. And he just won't go away. And so he's finally like, I don't know what I do. I guess I just have to like find out how to get in touch with Rick Schneider and he calls up Rick. And he says, Rick, this is going to sound crazy, but like I just can't shake this sense that like I'm supposed to get in touch with you. And it felt, felt like urgent from the Lord, like I needed to do it. Like, so I have now embarrassed myself. Um, why would the Lord have me get in touch with you? Please tell me there's an answer. To which Rick responds, well, as it happens, I just got back from the doctor. and I've been diagnosed with ALS. Perhaps that has something to do with why the Lord put, you on, put me on your heart today. So Adam begins a multiple month, multiple year um, process of praying with the Schneiders. Some, in this, some of you in this room may have been involved with that. Um, going over to the Schneider's house, praying, always praying for healing, praying for restoration, but, but also worshiping and, and just being in God's presence, um, in the presence of this extraordinary family that's been, and all the like, you know how these houses are. Josh and Tina have a house like this. You like go over to their, go to their, someone's house and there's like, there's always like a handful of other people there who are also, are just like on adventures with Jesus, right? And so that's what was going on at the Schneider's house. Um, and Adam and, 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 and a number of folks from this church and like Catholic charismatic priests and like all kinds of folks are sort of coming through to pray. And they have profound, profound encounters with the Holy Spirit. There are all these God moments, moments of partial healing, moments of prophetic insight, uh, Rick being who he was, lots and lots of prayer for others who were gathered as well. Adam described what it was for, for him as he, uh, he, he, his, his son was stillborn during that season of going and regularly praying for the Schneiders. And the Schneiders and Rick from his wheelchair praying and being with Adam. Years of prayer that led to all of these good things that God was doing. It also led part of the story to Rick's death and to yesterday's memorial service. And Rick and his family wanted to insist lead, leads also to Rick's resurrection, resurrection with Jesus on the last day, to which speaker after speaker yesterday bore witness. And as Adam shared that story, it made me think of all the courageous steps to Jerusalem that are part of that story, right? And just following up on, a, on, a, on a, an impression that the Lord's given him, and then the answer comes back, like, why did God ask, me, ask you to get in touch with me? Because I'm, I have a terminal illness, and I think, you know, and, and, and so Adam's like, all right, that's where we're going. That's where the Lord's leading. I'm in. That story made me think of all the courageous steps to Jerusalem I've seen people take here in this community. Made me think of maybe Agnes Kennedy receiving a diagnosis of a condition not compatible with life, and the steps that the Kennedy family, that is like such a bizarre medical phrase, not compatible with life. Steps that, the, I think of the steps that the Kennedy's, Kennedy family took in that season, I think they were, in some respect, steps towards Jerusalem and steps towards them in that season, which I know many in this community took, were steps toward Jerusalem. Steps toward what God was doing, and at the same time, steps into suffering. Steps in which hope ultimately is in God's ability to raise the dead. it multiply examples of ways that folks have chosen in this community to draw near to one another in suffering. And folks have chosen to draw near to Hannah and to me in our moments of uh, great uh, confusion and sorrow. And it makes me think also about the the what what, what happens in our community when you know a, when a, a violent death happens in this city, and the non violence group decides to follow Jesus into reaching out to the family. Those are steps toward Jerusalem. They're astounding. They're frightening. They entail entering into sharing in sorrow and suffering. They place our hope not in ourselves, but in God's power to raise the dead. So this afternoon I wanna I wanna I wanna ask you these questions. Or you might ask yourself these questions. Where is Jesus leading you to Jerusalem as it were? This this next one's for me. Where are you afraid to follow because it might lead to conflict? Or where are you inclined to to use your cleverness to figure out a way to to keep conflict under wraps as long as you possibly could be? Where is your fear of conflict preventing you from following Jesus where Jesus is leading? Third, where are you afraid to follow because it might bring you closer to suffering? That's just real, I think that happens in our lives. And again, I don't think, I don't think, I'm not proposing that like, hey, wherever there's like the most suffering, that's where Jesus is leading. Um, I mean, Jesus was moved by compassion, by like those who suffer. Um, But I'm not, I just, I'm not saying like we pile on as much pain as possible in our lives. I'm saying that, that Jesus may lead us into places and we may be hesitant because we're concerned that it'll bring us closer to suffering. It's worth processing that with the Lord. And finally, how might Jesus be inviting you to place your hope not in your own ability to avoid conflict and suffering, but in God's power to raise the dead? To be present to the pain, to be present to the conflict, to be present to the loss not, not discounting it because of God's ability to raise the dead. But present to it. And with every hope and expectation that God will not allow the suffering to have the final word. I mean, we've got the worship team to, to come up. There's a heaviness in this room, and we are in the season of Lent, and we talked last week about cost, and we're talking this week about walking with Jesus to Jerusalem. I feel like the Lord wants, wants uh, a number of folks in this room to know that, um, that, that God leads um, because of the good things that God is doing in the world.
1: One thing that I was struck
0: by as Adam was telling his story at the memorial yesterday was that um, I mean the way he talked about what happened in those years of walking with the Schneiders was like like he wouldn't have he wouldn't have traded it for anything right It's like yes it was painful and yes but yes to to the, the, to be near to the thing that God was doing was also an extraordinary gift and those two things were inseparable if you're able I, I encourage you to. why don't we stand I'd like to pray for us and then i know there's someone here who's got some words to share is that... um but the, the the one one thing that i definitely that i, I want to make sure that i get a chance to pray for is I, I wonder if there's any folks here who are sort of in the boat with me who are for whom uh, this, this stuff about conflict avoidance is like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's me. Um, Lord, lead me anywhere, <laughs> um, as long as I get to be, like, the conciliatory person who's always, like, making it feel better. <laughs> um, but the thought, if the thought that God might lead you into a place of, like, like, like the conflict that you've been trying to avoid, if that's, like, a sort of a particularly sort of, like, uh, scary thing for you... Um, I wonder if you would just uh sort of like raise your hand and we could come around and pray pray for you. Yeah. More hands. Yeah. If you're just like, Yeah, man, Lord, lead me anywhere, but like please not into conflict. Is that if that's you? Yeah. Yeah. I know we're talking about something you're afraid to do, and I asked you to do a scary thing by raising your hand. All right, so you can, I will pray regardless. But if, if, uh, if folks who have their hands up, if you're, if you're near them, you want to like, uh, you know, extend a hand towards them. Um, if you know them, put a hand on their shoulder. Um, let's, let's, let's pray. Um, Lord, you have, um, you have modeled for us, Jesus, a life, in pursuit of peace that was unafraid of conflict. And I confess, Lord, that I don't always understand how those two things can, co- can go together, but it seems that in your life, those two things are really importantly connected. So would you just, I'm um, <laughs> uh, praying for folks, and I'm also one of them, Lord. Would you give us just a feeling of your spirit that would put in us a spirit of peace that is unafraid, or, or, or if, we, if and as we are afraid, is nevertheless full of enough courage to step into the conflict that the pursuit of peace requires. Would you release just... Uh, release us from our, um, from false pieces, (laughs) from a false piece, any sort of false piece that we are deeply invested in, would you just break us loose of those things? Any sort of pieces of an identity that maybe have been spoken over us or that we've taken up for ourselves, like, oh, this is who we are, we are, we are, we are peaceable, or we are, we're just so kind or so gentle or whatever it might be that feels like it might be lost in these sorts of moments. If you were to lead us in a new sort of direction, we just want to break those things off. Whatever's from you, leave there, Lord. Whatever's not from you, we just ask that you just move it aside so that we could be bold and courageous. And I pray for all of us as a community here in ECV that in where there are ways that you want to mature us as a community that will require us to enter into conflict with one another, I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to do that, to enter in with courage and boldness and gentleness and in the pursuit of peace.